All right, so welcome everyone to Drisha's full program. And this is the final part in this series on living and dying with dignity, themes in halacha and medical decision-making with Rabbi Daniel Reichman. And with that, I'll turn this to you, uh, Rabbi Reichman. Thank you so much. Okay, let me share my screen. Okay, uh, while I'm doing this, let me just again introduce the section that we're about to tackle today. Um, up until this point, we've been talking about treatments that you are required to provide uh, an ailing patient at the end of life. Um, we talked about uh, the difference between natural and artificial treatment. We talked about the fact that the distinction between the balance between wanting to lessen the patient's suffering and also not shorten his or her life uh, intentionally or deliberately um, plays out in terms of that distinction between natural and artificial. Um, in the last class, we talked about what kinds of contemporary medical treatments um, are considered to be natural and what kinds are considered to be artificial. Um, we did say that there was a debate specifically about, uh, about the uh, providing oxygen because again, even if oxygen is something that we consider to be uh, natural, the means with which we provide a moribund patient with oxygen are artificial. In other words, just because breathing is something that comes naturally and that we can't control, doesn't mean that breathing through a tube that's inserted into your throat is something that we also consider to be natural. So in terms of orthodox halachic authorities, Virtually everybody, but not every, but not all halach, not all Orthodox authorities agree that you must provide oxygen, um, or more to the point that once oxygen is being provided, that you cannot withdraw it. The question of, and this is a very common question, maybe the most common question that comes up in these kinds of scenarios: What about a DNR? What about somebody who signs a form saying "Do not resuscitate," meaning they don't want to be intubated? Uh, especially because they realize that once they're being intubated, uh, halachically, it's much more complicated to justify extubating them. Um, so I want to leave the question of DNR um, outside the scope of what we're going to deal with um, uh, in this course. Uh, I'll just kind of summarize and say that typically when somebody is at the stage where um, they will inevitably die, um, in, in, in a very short period without oxygen, then you can, then, then even an orthodox POSIC will say you don't need to provide them with oxygen artificially. You don't need to intubate them. The question is only if they're at a stage where they are able to breathe on their own and they could continue to live for a significant period of time with assisted breathing, um, then the question would be, uh, then, then, then you would have to intubate them. And then the question would be when, what would justify extubating them? We saw last week, however, that uh, Rabbi Chaim David Halevi, uh, who was the uh, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv in the early days of, uh, of the state of Israel, um, disagrees. And that's a position that many conservative uh, halachic authorities take as well, that intubation is something that's artificial and therefore not necessary to provide. Again, even in the conservative movement, this is not a universally agreed upon point. Let me share my screen now then. The topic we're going to deal with today is what treatment may you provide to a dying patient. In other words, where there's an option for some sort of more aggressive optional treatment, um, may you take that? In what circumstances do we say that you may opt for a more aggressive treatment, even if it may harm the patient? 
And in that context, we'll also talk about uh, one of the most controversial topics uh, in, in end-of-life care, which is providing the patient with certain things that are designed to reduce suffering, but may shorten the patient's life. Okay. Um, in teaching, in, in kind of arranging the sources here, uh, I've, I've strayed from my, my usual approach to this topic, which is to present the sources more uh, I would say in a, in a kind of linear, uh, in, in, in a kind of linear um, arrangement. What do I mean by a linear arrangement? Typically, if you look at a uh, responsum, right, or a commentary from a contemporary halakhic authority, they will quote certain sources. And those are the sources that will be kind of in conversation uh, within that responsum and probably within other responsa written by other contemporary halachic authorities. So you get a sense that there is a linear flow from the earlier sources through the later sources. There are always a certain fixed set or limited set of sources that are in play in the conversation. And those are the ones that the authorities are drawing upon when they issue their rulings. When I, when I frame the question as what treatment may we provide to a dying patient, we're actually thinking about a number of different um, specific topics, which play out in a number of different kinds of medical scenarios. And I'll explain what I mean as we go forward. So what we're doing here is kind of picking and choosing from a number of different sources, rather than addressing one concrete or specific set of questions. We're doing this to get a sense of what the parameters uh, of, of, of this area of discourse are. We're getting a sense of the kinds of values that come into play rather than the specific halachic concerns that come into play. Okay, um, the first source, even with that introduction, the first source may, may throw you a little bit because it's really from left field. The Mishnah in Avodah Zarah says as follows, we may allow heathens to heal us when healing relates to money, but not personal healing. First of all, Masachat Avodah Zarah deals with, literally Avodah Zarah means idolatry, right? Masachat Avodah Zarah deals with idolatry and idolaters and lays out all sorts of different kinds of um, different kinds of interactions that Jews might have had with the non-Jews of their time. This is an area of halacha that obviously has shifted a great deal over the past 2000 years, but even within the Talmud, we see significant differences between say, the sociological and cultural context in the land of Israel, which was still under Roman rule during this time, and the context within Babylonia, which was eventually under Sassanid rule, because the Sassanids were Zoroastrians, and therefore there was an entirely different religious and cultural context there. Okay, so when I translate this term, when I use this term heathens, I've deliberately chosen that instead of idolaters, okay, and we'll see why. The question here is, can you, as a Jew in the rabbinic period, uh, seek medical care with an idolater or a heathen doctor, okay? And the answer is sometimes, just kind of the typical answer in rabbinic sources. When it relates to money, but not when it relates to personal healing. What does that mean? The Talmud doesn't know either. It gives a few suggestions. What is healing relating to money? What is personal healing? So it goes through a few options, which I've omitted here, and eventually it concludes, healing relating to money refers to one's cattle, i.e. money equals property and personal healing refers to one's own body. Now, it may seem strange to talk about the same doctor treating you and your cattle, 
Um, but in fact, in the pre-modern world, even as recently as the 19th century, often your doctor was also a veterinarian. Um, and I saw a fascinating article once about um, what we what, what we are missing nowadays that we have divided um, medicine, the, the, the field of medicine into human and animal uh, fields that, that barely talk to each other. Um, and the, this, the, the author was proposing that, that, uh, that people doctors have a great deal to learn from veterinarians um, about, uh, about certain, kinds of, uh, certain kinds of medicine. Be that as it may. You're allowed to go to a heathen doctor to treat your animal, but not to treat yourself. And now the question is, why? The Mishnah doesn't tell us, and neither, for that matter, does the Talmud. What would you say? Why would it be prohibited to go to a heathen or idolatrous doctor? Okay, and, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm leaving the term heathen or idolater a little vague for, for, uh, for my own reasons. Yeah, Emily. And, and I, I think that uh, several things, there probably was a lot of distrust at many times, but also uh, one could be afraid that um, a, a heathen doctor might uh, call upon uh, idolatrous deities to help. Okay, the, the typical, the, your first instinct is to say, oh, well, they're idolaters. Maybe they'll use their idolatry in treating you. And idolatry is something that you're not allowed to benefit from. Even if you're not doing the worshiping, you're benefiting from their doing idolatry on your path and therefore would be prohibited, okay? That turns out not to be the right answer, okay? <laughs> Even though it's our first instinct. The first answer was actually, the first thing, the, right, the correct answer, as we'll see in a minute, is the first thing that we said was there was a great deal of distrust between idolaters and Jews, or between Romans and Jews. And that mistrust sometimes was so deep that we are afraid that- They'll kill us. They might kill rather than cure. That seems a little overly suspicious. Yes, that seems a little prejudicial, a little biased. Maybe, it's hard for us to say, okay? But that is clearly the Talmud's assumption as you will see in a minute. You with me? In other words, that's why I've translated the term as heathen rather than idolater, because our concern is not whether they worship idolatry or not. Our concern is they are so um, spiteful and also so barbaric, so uncivilized that they might actually harm us rather than heal us. Forget about the Hippocratic Ophir, right? That's the point I'm trying to make. Okay, so here we go. Rava said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, and Sensei Rav Chist in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. In the case where it is unclear whether the patient will live or die, we may not allow them to heal. But if he will certainly die, we may allow them to heal. Along comes Rabbi Yochanan, okay, and Amora, a scholar of the Talmud, immediately after the codification of the Mishnah, and said, you know what? You're not allowed to go to a heathen doctor most of the time if you have an illness that might be life-threatening but might not. But if you know that your illness is life-threatening, if you know that without medical treatment you will certainly die, then you're allowed to go to a heathen doctor. Why? What's the logic? This is where you see the rationale behind the Talmud's thinking. The rationale is you're not sure whether this heathen doctor will kill you or cure you. And therefore, if you yourself have an illness that may not be life-threatening, then you're not allowed to go to them because you're risking your, your health. 
But if you know that this illness is going to kill you without medical care, then effectively, what would we say? You have nothing to lose. You might as well go to them. If they kill you, you were gonna die anyway, right? So that's why I say it's clear from the Talmud's analysis, from Rabbi Yochanan's analysis of the Mishnah, from the fact that he limits the scope of the Mishnah to cases where you know that you're going to die, for, that you're not sure you're gonna die, but if you know you're gonna die, you can go to a healing doctor. From that fact, it's clear that his concern is they will kill you rather than cure you. You with me so far? Okay. Says the Talmud, wait a second. Is it really true that you have nothing to lose? If you will certainly die, surely there is still momentary life to be considered. Well, it's true that you're definitely gonna die. So you, you might say, I have nothing to lose, but you really have nothing to lose. You might, he might kill you sooner than you would otherwise die. In other words, you still have momentary life to lose. If your illness is gonna kill you in two months and by going to the heathen doctor, he will kill you tomorrow. Well, you've just lost two months of life. Isn't that a concern? Think about this in the context of our discussion about shortening life, right? Well, here it's not we, we are not the, the healthcare providers who are shortening life. I'd say extubating the patient or by, uh, by, by not giving the patient food or, or, uh, or liquids. Um, here, it's the heathen doctor who's killing him. But nonetheless, the patient still has a responsibility to make sure that he's not putting himself in a situation where he's going to die sooner. Says the Talmud, we are not concerned for the loss of potential, uh, the potential loss of momentary life. Talmud says, you're right. You might die sooner, but that's not a concern. In other words, that is something that you are allowed to risk. From where do we learn that we're not concerned with the potential loss of momentary life? How do we know it's something you're allowed to risk? The scripture states, okay, now quotes a text, a biblical text to prove the point. What's the biblical text? This comes from 2 Kings 7.4. Okay, what's going on in 2 Kings 7.4? Anybody remember? You will remember if you're up on your, sorry? The leprous men outside the- Good, the lepers outside the city. Okay, so here we go. Let me just pull this up. The story is the city of Samaria was uh, being besieged by the Assyrians. I was actually just researching uh, in another context, siege craft in the ancient world. The Assyrians were apparently masters of siege craft. They had it down to a science, how to, to, to besiege a city and maximize the psych, not only the physical warfare, but also the psychological warfare involved, okay? So here we are in 2 Kings chapter four. Um, sorry, uh, this is 2 Kings chapter seven. Um, the city is being besieged and the king and, and all the officials turn to Elisha. Elisha is the prophet who is in the city as it's besieged. And they say, what are you going to do? Where's your God now? And he says, um, Elisha said to the elders, do you see, uh, here, uh, Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. Thus said the Lord this time tomorrow, a seah of choice flour shall sell for a shekel at the gate of Samaria and two saws of barley for a shekel, okay? In other words, the city is being besieged. They're running low on food. Elisha says, not to worry, tomorrow food will be plentiful and cheap. The aide on whose arm the king was leaning spoke up and said to the man of God, 
even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could this come to pass? In other words, the aide said, what are you talking about? How could this possibly happen? Happen, And he retorted, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat. How does God do this miracle? How does he provide food for uh, the entire city of Samaria? He does not open windows in the sky. Rather, he relies on human agency. Because, as we continue reading in the text, there were four men lepers outside the gate. The lepers were found outside the city gate in the buffer zone between the city and the, Ara the uh, sorry, it's not the Assyrians here, it's the Arameans uh, who are besieging uh, Samaria. They're between the city and the Aramean camp. And they say to themselves, why should we sit here waiting for death? If we go into the town, what with the famine in the town, we shall die there. And if we sit here, still we die. Come, let us desert to the army and camp. If they let us live, we shall live. And if they put us to death, we shall die. So here are four people, lepers, sitting outside the city saying, well, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. We can sit here and die. We can go into the city and die. Or we can go to the army and camp and beg for mercy. Let's try that. How is that a similar scenario to our patient going to see the heathen doctor? Again, the patient says, I'm going to die anyway. I might die in two months, but that's why I might as well go see the, I, I might die tomorrow. I might go die in two months. Let me go see the heathen doctor. By going to see the heathen doctor, he's also doing a cost-benefit analysis. He's essentially saying, the patient's saying, if I sit here, I'm going to die. If I go to the heathen doctor, he might cure me or he might kill me sooner. So based on these lepers' decision, says the Talmud, therefore, a patient can decide to do the same thing. If the patient is sick and she says to herself, I'm going to die anyway, I'll go to the even doctor, even if they kill me sooner, uh, I'm deciding to do essentially what the lepers did. Now, wait a second. You might think to yourself, who are these lepers anyway? Lepers are not exactly considered to be the most upstanding citizens in Israelite society, right? Even without the judgment that they got leprosy for some sin, which is how our sages treat this, the, the illness of leprosy, um, still, what kind of people are these to learn halachic behavior from? Okay, hold that thought. But why would we want to judge the, 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 the kind of normative halachic behavior based on what these lepers do? In our first class, we talked about um, learning uh, law from stories, learning law from narratives, right? We had the story of Rabbi Hudanasi's maid. So here we have another story, in this case, not a rabbinic story, but a biblical story. What should guide us here in terms of, of whether we learn normative behavior from these lepers? How would we know? How do we know what the text is trying to tell us? I mean, this is not a legal text. It's a, it's a narrative text. So what kind of values is the narrator giving us here? Maybe I should fill you in on some more of the details. What happens when they go to the camp? Here, in verse 5. They set out at twilight for the Aramean camp. When they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there. For the Lord had called the Aramean camp to hear a sound of chariots, a sound of horses, a din of a huge army. They said to one another, the king of Israel must have hired the king of the Hittites, the king of the of, of Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, to attack us. And they fled headlong into the twilight, abandoning their tents and horses and asses, the entire camp just as it was, as they fled for their lives. Okay. In other words, what happened? God's miracle consisted of elaborate sound effects. He caused a great din to scare away the Aramean camp. They fled in such haste that they left everything behind, including, obviously, their provisions. 
So in verse eight, when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into one of the tents and ate and drank. They carried off silver and clothing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then in verse nine, they said to one another, what we are, do we are not doing right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it silent. If we wait until the light of morning, we shall incur guilt. Come, let us go inform the king's palace. They inform the king's palace and the city rushes out. Uh, it, first, they send out soldiers to make sure that this is not a ruse. Uh, again, in my in my research on siegecraft, I discovered that ruses of this sort were exactly the kind of thing that ancient armies did to draw people out of the city. Um, so they made sure this was not a ruse, and it wasn't. Um, and then uh, down here in verse 16, the people then went out and plundered the Aramean camp. So a sa'av choice fa were sold for a shekel and two sa'avs of barley for a shekel at the Lord had spoken. Now the king had put the aid, the king, now the king had put the aid on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate, okay? That aide who said to Elisha, what are you talking about? How could this happen? He was in charge of the gate. And as tragically happened a few years ago on Black Friday, what happened? And he was trampled to death by the gate, by the people, just as the man of God had spoken, okay? So that aide was standing at the gate when the people rushed out of the city and was trampled to death. So given that you know the end of the story now, why would we side with the Arameans in terms of deciding normative behavior? You're saying it's God's intervention anyway. If you're, if you're going to a heathen, He's using him as just a, a um, vessel to actually make a decision, which is really God's intervention. Oh, okay. Well, well you, you jumped a step. Okay. <laughs> hold, hold on a second. But I had you another question, if you don't mind, Danny. You're talking about this person who is on their deathbed, assumedly. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Hold up. Before we get back okay, to the sick sorry. question, hang, hang on a second. What, just about the lepers. What about the lepers? Why would we take the lepers' behavior to, and, and, and extrapolate that that's normative behavior? They're the heroes of the story. Right? What better, what better, uh, I'm thinking of the Hebrew term, um, uh, 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 stamp of approval could you have for their, for their decision than the fact that they are the vessel for the fulfillment of God's prophecy, right? So they may not be the most upstanding citizens. They not be, may not be the preeminent legal scholars of their time, but still they're the heroes of the story and therefore their behavior is implicitly endorsed, okay? Now, Therefore, we draw an analogy between the patient's, uh, the, the dying patient's situation and their situation, as if dying patient can also choose. Mary wants to suggest that really what's going on when you, you go to the heathen doctor is not simply a risk-cost-benefit analysis, but really you're treating the heathen doctor as a vessel for God's intervention. That's a fascinating interpretation that I'd actually never thought of, okay? And, and you could look at it that way. Right? You could, thinking about illness, again, in theological terms, which we don't always do. Even the rabbis don't always think of illness in theological terms. But if you choose to think of it in theological terms, as we did in certain sources in the first topic that we discussed, then you could very well uh, draw an even deeper analogy between these two and say that just as the lepers are really fulfilling the word of God, so too the heathen doctor you trust will fulfill the word of God, and that's why you're not concerned. In other words, your cost-benefit analysis is really a statement of faith, not simply just throwing caution to the wind. Fascinating. Yeah, Mary, you had another question. Yes, I did. Well, you're talking about this person who's on their deathbed, deciding to go to a heathen. 
they sound like they're of, of sound minds and body to be able to think about that. I'm thinking about a patient who's like, are you kidding me? They don't make these decisions. Other people are making decisions for them. Yeah, yeah. Hold that thought. We'll come, then. come okay. to that. Okay. I, the, the, the DNR is, the, the issue of the DNR is one of the trickier issues in, in medical care. Uh, the other really tricky issue is when a patient is not competent to, to, to issue, uh, you know, to, to, to indicate their wishes, who do you rely on, right? In American law, for example, we assume that it's the next of kin. It's the family that has the authority to do that. In Jewish law, that's not true. The family has no more say than anybody else. The patient has a great deal of say in their own treatment, but the family is not actually given um, any more say, except insofar as they can attest to what the patient would have wanted. Okay. Okay. Um, but we're not quite done with this sukkah yet. Okay. There's another interesting twist that's coming up now. An objection was raised from a Brayta. One may not do business with sectarians, nor, way be, nor one, may one be healed with them, even if one is risking only momentary life. What's a sectarian? In the time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, this was a period of great unrest uh, in uh, not only politically, but also religiously. There were all sorts of different sects of Judaism uh, competing with one another at this time. Um, and the sect that they're referring to here was almost certainly, or almost certainly included early Christians, okay? Remember, this is the Galilee, this is the period after the destruction of the first temple, um, and this is when uh, Christianity, early Christianity is really coming into its own. It happened once to Ben Dama, the son of Rabbi Ishmael's sister, that he was bitten by a serpent, and Jacob of Karsakanya came to heal him. Jacob of Karsakanya is a figure who appears in a number of Talmudic stories. Again, he was almost certainly an early Christian. Uh, Karsakanya is uh, is actually a, a known uh, location in the uh, in, in in the Galil where you can visit, and they have uh, they have archaeological uh, they have they have archaeological remains there. But Rabbi Ishmael did not let him. Okay, so we have this law that you can't be healed by sectarian, and then we have a story of Ben Dama. Rabbi Yishmael's nephew, who is bitten by a snake, and Jacob Farsakanyan comes to heal him. Rabbi Yishmael says, no, you can't come in. I won't let you touch him. Whereupon Ben Dama said, my brother Rabbi Yishmael let him so that I may be healed by him. And I will say a verse from the Torah that he is to be permitted, but he did not manage to complete his statement when his soul departed and he died. Very traumatic rendition here. Where he's mid-sentence, he's about to cite a proof text, and he... Uh, he kills over and dies. Whereupon Rabbi Ishmael exclaimed, Fortunate are you, Ben Dhamma, for you were pure in body, and your soul likewise left you in purity. Nor have you transgressed the words of your colleagues who have said, He who breaks through offense, a serpent shall bite him. Okay. In other words, Rabbi Ishmael, after Ben Dhamma's death, said, Ben Dhamma, I'm so proud of you that you died uh, in purity, that you didn't transgress the words of the rabbis, because what happens to somebody who transgresses the words of the rabbis? He cites a verse from Ecclesiastes, which says, he who breaks through a fence, the fence again being the rabbinic law, a serpent shall bite him. Okay? So here we have another story. And again, when you have a story of this kind, uh, the question is, why is the Talmud bringing it? What's the point of the story? The Talmud is mid-discussion. So before we get to the point of the story, we have to finish off the discussion. 
right? Wait a minute, we just said that you can go to a heathen doctor if you're definitely gonna die. And here's Ben Dama, who's definitely dying. In fact, he does die. Why can't he do the same thing with the sectarian doctor? Why can't he say, well, I have nothing to lose, so the sectarian doctor will kill me? Says the Talmud, sectarianism is different than paganism, for it entices. And one having dealings with sectarian may be drawn after him. So here, the concern is not, or not only that the sectarian may harm you, but that you may be drawn after their religion. In other words, here it is a religious issue, whereas when we were talking about relationship with a pagan doctor, it was not that you'd be drawn to paganism, but rather that you were afraid that the heathen doctor might kill you, okay? That's the Talmud's distinction between sectarianism and paganism. Okay, you with me so far? In other words, there are still religious concerns that come up in medical care. What's the application of this nowadays? any of this? Is there ever a concern that if you go to the doctor and the doctor on call is Dr. Patel, who's Hindu, that because he's an idolater, you shouldn't take his care? Clearly not, okay? Because the assumption is nowadays, again, hence the translation of heathen instead of pagan or, or idolater, um, the assumption is nowadays that in terms of modern medical ethics, the Hippocratic Oath is, uh, is, is preeminent and therefore there's never a concern that the doctor will deliberately try to harm you uh, out of spite. Um, and the sectarian issue also, right? Is there ever a concern that if you're going to, uh, I don't even know what sectarians would be nowadays, if the doctor suddenly said, well, yes, I'm a Jew for Jesus, right? I guess it'd be the closest equivalent to an early Christian. A concern that you will be drawn into his religion, my assumption is no, but, okay? But the context is interesting. No less interesting is the story, okay? And again, you look at the story and you think, what's the point of bringing a story like this? What's the narrative, what, what's, what's, the, what's the message of the narrative here? What's the moral of the story as the, as the Talmud is, um, as, as, as the Talmud presents it? Who's the hero of the story? We've only got two options, right? It's not Jacob not, not Jacob of Parsakanya, right? So it's either Rabbi Shmuel or Bendama. One could say, yeah, Alan. Yeah, I think that um, the uh, the brother-in-law. Um, which rabbi is it? Uh, rabbi Ishmael. Why is Rabbi Ishmael the hero of the story? Because he was pushing for uh, for uh, purity, ritual purity, and he got his way. He's pushing for ritual purity or maybe spiritual purity, right? And he gets his way. He has the last word, right? Because he's the only one left standing at the end of the story. Um, he's, his, I, I his ruling, question, hold I on a second. His though. ruling is also in line with, with the halakha, with the ruling at the beginning of the, that precedes the story, right? One may not right. do business with sectarians nor may one be healed by them. So that also endorses his position. Yeah, you had a question? Well, my question is, uh, you know, the idea which I just came on and this is the first time I've been in your class, so I want to okay. thank you for accepting me. Uh, the, um, the idea that I thought that saving a life overrides anything, even keeping Yom Kippur, even anything. So uh, how about that? How does, how does that contrast with this? Yeah, how about that? 
all of a sudden you realize that he may be in line with this rabbinic ruling, but is not necessarily in line with lots of other rabbinic rulings, right? The Talmud raises that point in a minute, but before we get to that, why might you say that Rabbi Shemal is not the hero of the story and that maybe the author of the story is trying to create a certain degree of ambiguity here? Look at the proof text that Rabbi Shemal quotes. He who breaks through a fence, a serpent shall bite him, right? Get out your whatever color you use for irony and 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 color this. Yes. He was just bitten by a serpent. What do you mean that you will be bitten by a serpent? He was just bitten by a serpent. Now, this is where I I the, the Talmud um I, I, I try to I try to always think of the, the right word to use here. Um the Talmud is a little um that's what I'm looking for. Um, the, 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 the Talmud doesn't quite get irony, <laughs> let me put it that way, um, because the Talmud notices the coincidence between the verse that he quotes and the fact that he was just bitten by a serpent, but it asks it kind of in a monotone, in, in kind of uninflected. Okay, look at what the Talmud says. Regarding that which he said, that regarding that which was said, nor have you transgressed the words of your colleagues who said he who breaks through a fence, the serpent shall bite him. But a serpent did indeed sting him. Right. In other words, the Talmud notices the coincidence, but rather than saying, oh, that's deliberately ironic and it's an implicit critique of Rabbi Ishmael's position, the Talmud answers as if, as if it were a normal factual question. What does the Talmud say? The verse refers to the serpent bite of the rabbis, which is worse than a normal serpent's bite in that it can never be cured. In other words, Ben Dhamma was bitten by a physical serpent, but had he transgressed the words of the rabbis, he would have been bitten by a metaphorical serpent, okay? He would have transgressed the words of the rabbis and he would have committed a sin, which is far graver than any physical damage that could have been done to his body because the sin would have damaged him even in the world to come, okay? So the Talmud notices the iron, notices the, the coincidence and, but, and, and answers it, but doesn't notice the irony and the suggestion that maybe Rabbi Ishmael is not in fact the hero of the story and that Rabbi Ishmael's position is being subtly critiqued. In other words, the story creates a great deal of ambiguity about the cost of refusing certain kinds of medical treatments and whether this is religiously worth it. Why does Rabbi Ishmael insist that it's worth it, that the risk of getting involved with sectarians is so severe or so threatening that we refuse medical treatment from them? Why does he do that? What about Alan's question that, that virtually any concern, uh, virtually any halakhic concern is pushed out of the way when it comes to saving a life? Okay. Now, what is it that Ben Dhamma would have said, right? Well, what was Ben Dhamma about to say as he, as, he, as he suddenly died? Ben Dhamma was going to say, according to Talmud, he shall live by them, but not die by them. In other words, he would have quoted this as his proof text. In the Hebrew, v'chai bahem, you shall live by God's words and not die by God's words. How would Rabbi Yishmael have responded? This notion applies only when in private, but not in public. For it has been taught, Rabbi Yishmael used to say, whence can we deduce that if one were to, that if they were, they say to one, if the, if, if the, if a, a, a non-Jew would say to somebody, worship the idol and you won't be killed, but him you worship it so not to be killed, because the scripture says he may live by it, but not die by it. You might take this to mean even in public, therefore scripture says, and you may not profane my holy name. 
again, this is not necessarily in line with the normative halakha that we know that there are so-called big three sins, idolatry, murder, and incest that are uh, things you have to sacrifice your life for. Rather, the distinction the Talmud makes here is between private and public. And what's the issue at stake? If you, des if you, if you sin in public because you get involved with, with, uh, with pagans or sectarians, and therefore uh, are, are, are violating your religious terms in order to save your life, what's the problem? It's a desecration of God's name if you do it in public. And therefore, Rabbi Ishmael says, it's worth sacrificing your life because the price to pay of desecrating God's name by taking the treatment from the sectarian is too grave. Okay. Isn't it, isn't it also that, you, that you're doing it may entice others to... Um, to do something with the sectarians? There's a whole because social context here. You might get involved with sectarians, you might cause, yeah, there, 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 there's a whole social context that's, that, that serves as the background to this, this whole discussion, right? In other words, the rabbis felt that this particular sect, okay, again, which was almost certainly early Christianity, was so threatening that, um, that, that they needed to have a certain very strict um, communal safeguards and, and, and separations between the communities so as not to encourage any sort of mixing uh, or, 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 or religious influence. Okay. Um, I want to look now at um, two, uh, I want to look first at um, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's analysis of this Talmudic passage, um, because he doesn't analyze the entire passage that we've read here, although he does in other contexts, but he does pinpoint one essential element of this passage, um, which, which, which speaks to the values that I want to draw out from this, uh, for in, in, in this, uh, in, in today's session. Okay. He says as follows. On the issue of potentially dangerous operations, for which the chance of recovery is less than 50%, but without which it's certain that the patient will die within a short time, okay? That's the halachic issue at stake. So he's taken the, the, the he's changed the, the context of, his, of the discussion into a different kind of risk benefit analysis. You're going to a certain doctor, why are you going to them? because you have a fatal illness, and this is the only chance that you have to be healed, this kind of experimental treatment. An experimental treatment could very well kill you sooner. And you are essentially saying, you know what, this is the last chance I have, this is my only, I have nothing to lose, let me go ahead with this treatment anyway. Are you allowed to do that? So he says as follows. The, the, the context here, again, um, for, for those who have been in this kind of situation or uh, the loved one in this kind, who have been, has been in this kind of situation, um, I, I don't know how often this happens in, in, in uh, contemporary medicine. There are certainly experimental treatments that, that, that people appeal to, though typically um, nowadays, again, <laughs> Everything I say, I'm thinking, well, is this true in time, the time of COVID? Um, the, the, the treatments generally go through at least a, a minimal amount of testing before they're used on actual patients. Um, as recently as, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, that was not routinely true. 
if you look, for example, at the early, um, the, the, the early, um, I was about to say experiments, and it's not actually an, an inaccurate term, experiments with organ transplants, um, the patients who agreed to undergo an organ transplant in the early days of organ transplantation were essentially human guinea pigs. And they agreed because they really had no other option. And most of them, I would say a, a very high percentage of them um, died uh, fairly gruesome deaths. Why? What, what happens when you when they tried to do organ transplantation in the 1950s, 60s, even 70s? The, the body rejected the organ, right? And, and there was this terrible immunological response. Yeah, Alan, did you wanna? I'm a retired surgeon and I've been involved in a lot of clinical projects. And actually I was at Stanford and involved in some of the early uh, heart and heart lung transplants. Oh, wow. um, but even today, um, what you're doing is you're weighing the risk of uh, dying uh, without the experimental procedure. So let's say uh, I'm making up numbers and I'm making up a disease. Let's say you have a disease that'll kill you in uh, six months. Okay, if you have this experimental procedure, and that's 100% sure you'll die in six months. If you have this experimental procedure, there's a, a 10 or even a 50% chance you're gonna die immediately, but there's a 50% chance you're gonna live for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so those that's, are exactly, that's what you're weighing. And that's exactly the context that he's talking about. In other responses, he does a more nuanced analysis and says, what if the treatment is going to heal you, but not completely? Right. What if the treatment, uh, as is often the case in organ transplants, uh, is going to leave you dependent on immunosuppressants, right, which necessarily weakens your 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 immune uh, immune system. So that's what he addresses there. But here he's doing a simple cost benefit analysis in terms of the possibility that you will die much sooner, or the possibility this will heal you completely and you could live another twenty years. Okay. So he says as follows, it's true that I agreed to permit them as our friend Rabbi Yosef Link told you, okay, he's speaking to the person writing him this letter. This is a, a letter written to a particular individual that was then published as a responsum. And the reason that I, the, the reason that the only thing at stake is momentary life, that perhaps the patient will die sooner from the operation than he would otherwise. And it's explicitly stated in Avodah Zarah 27b, the Talmudic passage that we just read, that we are not concerned for the potential loss of momentary life, okay? Now, he makes a particular point here about the choice of proof text, okay? He says, how do we know that even if the chance of your survival is fairly low, because look at the proof text, and it must be so based on the Gemara, which brings a proof from the verse, if we enter the city, there is famine in the city, excuse me, and we will die there, which is why it was permissible for them to cast themselves on the mercy of the Aramean camp, even though it was much more likely that we'd be killed by the Arameans, right? Think about the chances that these lepers were taking. What was the chance that the Arameans were gonna take mercy on them? It was virtually certain the Arameans would kill them with a tiny percentage chance that they would actually take mercy on them, right? So if that's the proof text, then that's true even for a highly experimental operation where your chances of survival to say nothing of being healed are really very low. Rabbi Feinstein says you're allowed to take that chance. We see from here that we are not concerned with the potential loss of momentary life, even if salvation is a distant possibility and it's much more likely that one will be killed, okay? 
Effectively, what is he saying? He's saying in these kinds of circumstances, the patient has a great deal of leeway as to what kinds of treatments we may provide. The patient is allowed to say, I understand the risk. I understand that the chance of survival or certainly the chance of being healed is very low. Nonetheless, I'm willing to put myself in the situation because I understand that this is what is, is, is better for me in terms of long-term, okay? So this is an important text in terms of understanding the kinds of choices that we allow a patient to make uh, when they're in a situation where they know that they're, they're, they, they have a terminal illness. Again, not getting into details, what counts as a terminal illness, right? That's another question that you could ask. Uh, the, 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 the number that Rabbi Feinstein puts on it is a year. Why a year? It's kind of a random number. Yes, but any number you put on it is random. All of those details are kind of beside the point because the value that I want to extract from here is the amount of leeway that he gives the patient simply in terms of, of, of the, the, the cost-benefit analysis that he allows the patient to do. One more Talmudic passage, and then we'll get to uh, the, the, uh, a section that I actually only uncovered recently, and I, I did not even have a chance to fully translate it before class. So I will, we'll, we'll read through it together uh, and, and explain what's going on there. This is the Talmud in Sanhedrin, another kind of out of left field passage that's gonna give us a sense of the kinds of, uh, of, the kinds of uh, decisions that go on in these medical treatments. We learned, he who strikes his father or mother is liable only if he wounds them, okay? So there's a prohibition in the Torah that you're not allowed to strike your parents. And what's the prohibition for striking? What's the punishment for striking one's parents? Death. Okay, pretty severe. Does that mean anytime you strike your parent that you get the death penalty? No, it has to be a bleeding wound, okay? Well, think about that for a minute. What does that mean for a doctor who wants to treat her parent? The scholars asked, may a son let blood for his father, right? In letting blood for a parent, he's literally causing a bleeding wound. Rav Matna ruled, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Rav Matna says, sure, because we have a verse in the Torah that says, kamocha. What? What does that mean? Hold on. Rav Dimi said, the Torah says, he who smites a beast shall restore it, and he who smites a man, he shall put it to death. Just who strikes an animal, just as one who strikes an animal isn't liable for damage, so if he strikes a man to heal him, he's not liable. Okay, Rav Dimi's analysis gives us a little bit of context here. The point is, when the Torah talks about striking, what's implicit in the term strike, makeh? What's implicit there? That you're doing it not only, you're not only doing a physical act, you're doing it with a certain purpose in mind and with a certain, a certain, uh, a, a certain result that you want to have, which is to do harm. If you strike, physically, in order to heal, that's not called striking. Just as somebody who strikes an animal in order to heal them, that's not something that they're monetarily liable for. So too, somebody who strikes a person is not liable for that sin, even if the person is a parent, if it's done to heal. And now we have a little sense, a little more sense of what Ramatna means when he quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How is that a proof text for allowing a child to bloodlet for a patient? Says Rashi, commenting on that passage in the Talmud, one is prohibited from doing to others only that which one wouldn't want done to oneself. 
In other words, implicit in the sin of striking a parent is that it's being done to harm. How do you know if something is being done to harm? And here we come back to Miri's question. What defines something as harmful? Well, there are certain general social assumptions. If you, well, maybe not social, but let's at least say subjective, how do you know whether something is harmful? Would you want it done to you? Which is, of course, Rabbi Akiva's golden rule, right? Which he learns from this verse. Don't do unto somebody else what you wouldn't want to be done unto you. The flip side of which is, if you would want it to be done to you, then you may do it to somebody else, and doing it to somebody else is not considered to be harm. That's not something that you're going to be liable for, okay? Think about that in the context of Mary's question, how do we know what the patient would have wanted? Again, that's a very complex question. There are all sorts of case studies uh, that I came across uh, when, I, when I took a course in graduate school in contemporary medical ethics, one of a woman, uh, an Israeli patient who insisted that she would rather die than have uh, her leg amputated even though the doctors were quite certain that amputating the leg would, uh, would save her life. She said, no, I want to die with my body intact. And, and she refused to have uh, her leg amputated. Those cases exist, but they're, they're fairly extreme. For the most part, we understand what standard medical treatment is. And, and typically we understand the kinds of things that a patient would want done to them, even if they are not available to tell us exactly what the course of treatment they would want. Okay. So here we come to, um, I'll, I'll, let me, let me uh, people, I don't know if people have questions or comments, but let me just, uh, I wanna just get through the next source and then we'll leave time for questions at the end. Um, because the issue that comes up now um, in, in, in many contemporary medical uh, ethical discussions is the question of, um, of physician assisted suicide. Um, and alongside the issue of physician assisted suicide is the question of providing uh, certain kinds of pain relief or pain relief in certain quantities um, that may shorten a patient's life, okay? Um, I realize this is also an issue uh, that is subject to some degree of medical debate, the extent which certain analgesics actually have an effect of shortening a person's life. It's certainly true that given in certain amounts, uh, morphine or other drugs like that can depress uh, or the respiratory system, but again, I don't know enough to say in terms of actual medical contemporary medical treatment how analgesics are administered uh, to to uh, in end of life care and, and whether that's really a risk. But from a halachic perspective, the 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 issue is um, more fraught because, as we saw in the previous uh, few lessons that we had, the, the 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 bright line distinction that we make in halacha is active versus passive causing someone's death. There are certain cases where you can withhold treatment, but withdrawing treatment is considered to be more active and therefore more problematic because you're directly causing a person's death. And then the, the, the real line that we're not willing to cross is actually administering some sort of drug, uh, some sort of, of um, of, of, of uh, any kind of treatment that is deliberately designed to shorten a person's life or cause their death. Yeah, Alan, I, I see your, your, uh, you, you want to weigh in here, just if you yeah, make sure. Again, I, as a retired physician, I dealt with this all the time. One interesting okay. thing is uh, having this, having a lot of Jewish patients and having discussed this with 
uh, both rabbis at national and international um, uh, medical halachic uh, meetings came to the decision that if a patient's going to, if you're going to let a patient die, you can't remove something like you just said. But if you, let's say you have a bottle of saline hanging and that's keeping the patient alive, you let that bottle finish, but you don't hang a new one. Yes, yes. And we, we already discussed that in previous lessons in terms of setting up a situation where you can passively allow the patient to die. Right. The, the question other, that is... The other thing I just want to say in regards to the um, uh, narcotic, uh, yes, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of patients were eased over the end with narcotics. But, but the problem that people had, and there was a stupid reason for having this problem, was we don't want to get this dying patient addicted to narcotics. It's right. not that the narcotics themselves will kill them unless you give them an overdose. And so right. patients were kept from getting adequate pain relief because of the fear that you would make a dying patient addicted to a narcotic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so that's actually the context in which this this um, this this ruling was issued because we're looking here at Rosh Hashanah and Erbach again. Uh, the preeminent is uh, Orthodox authority in Israel in the I'd say the last uh, third of the 20th century, um, and he was asked many medical questions and one particular about pain relief. Okay. And again, so we're bringing in here and tying together a number of different threads that we've talked about the issue of suffering and the value that we place on reducing a patient's suffering, and also the value on giving the patient agency and choice over their care. Here's what he says. Since physical pain is very difficult for a person, it makes sense to say that one may take pity on him and try to lessen his suffering, particularly since it's possible that intense pains weaken and damage him more than medications, okay? In other words, you're concerned when you give them medications, how much is this gonna harm the person? Well, think about the pain that they're already in. Pain can, can, can cause a person to be weakened and can cause whatever medical treatment you're giving them uh, not to be as effective. And therefore you have a medical interest in, uh, in, 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 in lessening their pain and helping them uh, be, be more active, be more, uh, be, uh, be more, um, more conscious, be, be, be better able to take care of themselves, be able to better to eat, to breathe. If the person is conscious, it makes sense that one must inform him about giving him analgesics, since in any case he knows his own situation. In other words, you have to respect the person's own ability to decide the person might not want any pain medication. But it seems to me that even if he is unaware, we nonetheless find in Rashi on Sanhedrin 84b, you shall love your, your neighbor as yourself. One is prohibited from doing to others only that which one wouldn't want done, want done to oneself. For in this situation, any patient wishes to lessen his pain, even if it harms him, and since this is, this is the case, we may assume it is to his benefit. The default assumption is you may give them more pain medication because the assumption is that that's what everybody wants. Now, what about the concern that this might harm the patient and hasten her death? So he says as follows, and this is where I didn't actually finish translating. Obviously, all this is only where once, I, this, this is buried in a footnote in a book that somebody lent to me that I had to find. And lo and behold, there it was. And I just put it in the source sheet, but did not, did not actually have time to, to translate. I apologize. Obviously, all this is only where one's intention is to lessen the pain. And that is what analgesics are likely, and that which analgesics are likely to hasten his death is akin to an undesired sick ratio or a double effect, though I use the term only rhetorically. 
This is a really controversial point because the question of double effect, double effect meaning if I do something, it might have two effects, only one of which I want. What am I doing here? I'm giving the patient pain medication to lessen their pain. It might also have the effect of hastening your death. Well, I don't want that to happen. And therefore I can discount that. That's often an argument that's used in secular medical ethics. It was prominently put forward by the British philosopher, Philip Foote, who gave all sorts of, she famously invoked the, 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 those uh, trolley problems to, to kind of uh, draw out the implications of these kinds of questions. She was the one who put forth uh, most famously, the doctrine of double effect that justifies this kind of decision. Double effect is a much more complicated argument to make in the context of halakha, because there are many, many cases where you can't make that argument. For example, if you do something on Shabbat that has two effects, one of which is prohibited, right, then it's actually prohibited to do that, even if you only want the one that's permitted. And that's the term that he uses here, psikreshe. Psikreshe is the sense of double effect in the context of Shabbat observance. So he goes forward and he makes the case that even though one could see this as potentially limiting the patient's life, if you do it in a way that's, that's calibrated and careful, you don't have to be concerned for that. Um, one of the contexts that I came across this when I was looking for what for the actual words that Rabbi Orbach wrote, I came across somebody who quoted him and said, I don't understand this ruling, but we do this anyway. Okay. Um, those are the kinds of rulings that you look at and you say, oh, this was written by somebody who was actually involved in these kinds of decision-making processes and understands that there are multiple layers of halachic discourse, one of which is the theory and being able to explain and justify, and one of which is the practice. And the practice often doesn't correlate perfectly with the theory. You look at these kinds of arguments and these kinds of justifications, and you understand that, that the, the, the boundaries here are very slippery. At what point do you say what I'm doing is contributing to or hastening the person's death? Sometimes you really don't know. Am I hastening their death by depressing their respiratory functioning or am I making them feel better and that allows them to breathe better, to eat better, to, to feel better and possibly to live longer? There are really no clear cut answers. And I think even uh, a, a, you know, a, a more sophisticated medical analysis cannot always provide us with a full complete picture of what the patient is experiencing and what effect something is going to have. And therefore this kind of ruling on the part of Rishlam and Orbach, who again was, uh, was um, the kind of authority whose, whose word had sufficient um, I, I was, was, was sufficiently reliable across the board, again, not only within the Orthodox world, but really across the spectrum of the Jewish community, um, that once he said it, it was kind of done and people didn't necessarily ask questions, even if they had certain problems with what he said. There are certainly those who challenged this ruling, but ultimately this is uh, considered to be fairly normative practice. So again, just to kind of give a, a, a summary of, of where we've been and how this relates to dignity, um, this is a, a, a very powerful acknowledgement uh, from, from within halacha that even though we place certain limits on the kind of medical care that we are allowed to provide at the end of life, again, prohibiting anything which actively or directly shortens a person's life 
even if it's what the patient desires, we still place a great deal of emphasis and give a great deal of value to uh, limiting the patient's suffering, which again is an element of dignity of treating them as a person and not simply as an organism, a person with a subjective perspective and not simply as a body to maintain. And also what we've seen today is this very powerful idea of agency in terms of choice. You allow the patient to choose their path within a, a, a fairly broad spectrum of scenarios. And that too is a critical element of dignity. Um, and, and the last point that I'll make is when they've actually done studies of, um, of patients who consider or sometimes choose uh, physician-assisted uh, physician suicide, um, the most powerful motivating factor there is the ability to choose in the sense of having agency over the course of one's treatment and control over the course of one's life. Because illness is very debilitating. Illness um, dissociates you in a certain way from your body. It means, it means you're no longer in control of your body and you're no longer in control of your circumstances. Um, and therefore the desire to, to regain control even at the cost of one's life can be a very powerful factor. So even though um, the, the normative halakha does not go so far as permitting uh, physician-assisted suicide, there is still a great deal of, uh, of, of acknowledgement that patient agency is a value that we, we endorse, um, and we allow uh, patient agency and, and patient well-being uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to be the determining factor in a great deal, uh, in, in a great many cases. Okay, um, so I'll open the floor now if you have comments or questions. I don't wanna keep anybody who, who needs to go, but um, thank you for, for, uh, for bearing with me and, uh, and for, uh, for working with me as we uh, work through these sources. And um, I look forward to learning with you in other contexts. But again, if anybody has any questions, please feel free to stay and, uh, and ask and we can continue the discussion for a few more minutes. Uh, Danny, on various occasions, I've had trouble with my computer and therefore logged in late. So I don't know if you covered the question of what is a halachic uh, or to what degree are, are there variations in a halachic uh, definition of food in terms of, you know, uh, giving somebody a, uh, a feeding tube. Right. So in general, the, 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 the assumption is, and again, I, I haven't seen anybody who makes the distinction that we saw in terms of oxygen between a breathing tube and, and natural unassisted breathing. Uh, in theory, one could do that in terms of nutrition as well, distinguish between, um, between intravenous nutrition and, uh, and, and, and physically feeding the patient. I haven't actually seen anybody make that distinction. It's possible because... Um, again, because, because Rav Moshe Feinstein um, allows the patient to refuse nutrition, that therefore it's, it's a less pressing issue. In other words, to, to say, oh, well, he can refuse. Nobody comes along and says, well, why don't you at least allow him to refuse artificial nutrition? Because that's actually what Rav Feinstein does. Um, but, but it's an interesting point. I, I, again, I haven't seen anybody make that distinction, but you certainly could. I, I just want to add... Many years ago, and unfortunately, I don't remember his name. It was a conservative rabbi who said that uh, he he discounted uh, the type of nutrition you get in a uh, feeding tube as food because it doesn't have the smell and the taste that somewhere or other it's written that food should have. Interesting. Interesting. 
right? You, you might also distinguish between a feeding tube uh, and, and, um, and, 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 and intravenous uh, nutrition. Again, not, um, uh, uh, if only because I think a feeding tube uh, can be uh, in, in very uncomfortable and in certain cases uh, pose certain uh, risks in terms of infection. Other questions or comments? Alan, did you have anything to add in terms of somebody else who has uh, medical experience, uh, given that I am not actually a practitioner in this area of halakha, I, have, um, I, I, I don't have uh, medical experience or, or, uh, or, or even um, pastoral experience in this area. I'm purely a theoretician. Yeah. It's, it's something that we come across, uh, you know, that these issues come up all the time. And the question uh, that I dealt with is, you know, I spent a lot of time researching what to do with uh, Jewish patients. And do I have the same obligation uh, to a non-Jewish patient? You know, the same decisions and yeah. uh, should yeah. I, uh, do I counsel a non-Jewish patient differently than I would counsel a Jewish patient? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> um, that's a really excellent question. Um, look, there, there's a lot of discussion in terms of um, overlap between and, and, and even influence between uh, Jewish, uh, especially Orthodox and Catholic bioethics. Um, it, 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 there, there, there's a lot of overlap, but it's not always exact. I would be very hesitant uh, were somebody to come to me for counseling uh, who's who's not coming to me as a, a, you know from a Jewish perspective, I would be very hesitant to counsel them. Um, again, simply because to to be aware of their value system and to be aware of the kinds of decisions that they are are the kinds of values they want to influence their decision, um, it requires a great deal of expertise that I simply don't have. Um, if you flip it and you say, are you allowed as a Jewish doctor to do certain things they might want you to do? That's a separate question that, that, that would, that would require a, a, a more detailed discussion with, with the halachic, with your, your, your halachic authority. Um, yeah, no, it's, a, it's, it comes, brings a lot of interesting things. Um, yeah. I, you know, a, another interesting thing is how uh, how I particularly wrote because I've spent so much time going to Jewish medical ethics conferences and how I wrote my living will and curious of what you think about it. I wrote that I gave a list of um, uh, 15 doctors who are in the area who I trust. And I said, uh, if uh, three of them feel that if you uh, query them and three of them feel that uh, continued medical care would be futile then I wouldn't want to be kept on a ventilator or uh, maintained uh, if recovery is futile. And yeah, so I, and I'm wondering what, how you think about that uh, wording, that phrasing of it. Again, it's not an area in which I have any degree of expertise in terms of the particular phrasing. Uh, I think most of us would not be in a position to pick 15 doctors and, and solicit their, solicit their advice. Um, it is important um, when one is, is faced with a situation that one, one might be in uh, to, to, to articulate one's wishes ahead of time. Um, I know that, um, you know, the, to the degree that I've been involved uh, to some extent in, in, in the theory, theoretical side of organ, of cadaveric organ donation, 
um, it's enormously important to, to, to make your wishes known uh, ahead of time, that you would want your organs to be donated, that you're willing to accept certain halachic definitions of death uh, if, if chas v'shalom, uh, one would ever be in such a situation. Um, but yes, the same thing is certainly true in terms of end-of-life care, the kinds of decisions that you want to make and the people you want to make them. Um, one thing that is unfortunate, and this is, I think, more true in Israel than in the U.S., um, there's a great deal of ignorance about this issue. Uh, and therefore, even secular Jews um, who find themselves in this sort of situation um, often get um, very skewed perspectives of what's uh, permitted in, in, in terms of halakha and end up making decisions that, um, that, that I think, you know, could, could have been better informed. Um, and in some cases could prevent uh, a great deal of suffering uh, either on, for them or for their families. Um, yeah. Okay, um, thank you again. And, uh, and as I said, I look forward to, uh, to, to learning with you uh, again in the future. Thank you, Rabbi Reichman. And thank you everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. We loved having you. We continue our, for our full program tomorrow at 8 p.m. with the final class in the series uh, on anger and Kabbalah, confronting divine and human rage through the Zohar by Dr. Nathaniel Berman and Rabbi David Silver. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this class, Rabbi Reifman. I'm looking forward to the next one. And for everyone who attended, we hope to see you at um, our upcoming classes. Adrisha, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Take care.